If you're a fan of big ideas, debate, and politics, check out our festival partner, Geopolitical Magazine Foreign Policy. A forum for informed debate about global affairs, foreign policy keeps a finger on the pulse of world news and political happenings. Beyond articles that delve behind the headlines via traditional reporting, Foreign Policy has so many other products to offer, ensuring that no matter how you like to engage with eye-opening content, there is a method for you. Check out their free offerings, like Foreign Policy Live, their forum for live journalism, newsletters, and podcasts. And with a subscription, unlock in-depth features and quarterly magazines, including their recently dropped spring edition, All About India. Fans of IAI will love Foreign Policy for more of the mind-expanding, insightful content that they seek. To explore their content, take advantage of an exclusive discount for IAI fans. Subscribe now using promo code LIGHT24 to save 50% and unlock access to everything Foreign Policy has to offer. Hello, and welcome to Philosophy for Our Times. It's the last episode in our January series on Brave New World, Brave New You. And this week, we're going to be uncovering the unknown by putting science against religion in the ultimate quest for truth. Theologian Rosie Harper, chemist Peter Atkins, and philosopher Steve Fuller debate whether science is the only way to truth. Hilary Lawson hosts. Does science uncover the truth? Or does it merely provide us with passing models and theories in the face of the inexplicable? There seems to be a way of having a hierarchy of qualities of truth. And it starts with science being pure truth. And then you have perhaps art and music and philosophy and novels and all sorts of things as a kind of communicative, prosaic truth that we can all experience. And then at the bottom of the pecking order, you get religion as a kind of mythical truth, which each culture will renegotiate for itself, but it's of a lower order. What I'd like to propose is that I think it's a fantasy to imagine that science can be any more precise about truth than any other discipline. Science is as dependent on imagery as poetry or music. But because the language it uses tends to seem to us to be more concrete, it carries this aura of solidity that often it really doesn't merit. And I think the point is that at any given moment in history, what is true is as true as it can be within its context. And I think the contextuality of science can be seen really clearly in the history of the way in which we describe the function of the brain. George Zakadakis, in Our Own Image, explains this really well. And he lists the way in which we think differently about the brain. And it's linked to the context in which they're talking. So in the third century, we invented hydraulics. And that became the truth about the brain function. By the 1500s, automata were on the scene. And then we've been through electricity, and we've been through chemistry and digital theory. And today, we express the scientific truth about brains in computing language. If you ask any current specialist in the brain to express what they believe about the brain without using computing language, they find they can't do it. And yet it is clear that you can easily prove that it's not exactly the case. I love the example of uh, the experiment they did with the dollar bill. If you believed in a computing type of brain function, you would think that a person who used the dollar bill every day would have that printed, as it were, onto their software, and they would be able to draw on it. 
So they asked people who use dollar bills a lot to draw a picture of a dollar bill. And it came out really primitively with a little one and a little person in the middle and just a little sketch. And then they gave them an actual dollar bill and put it alongside their drawing pad and they drew a dollar bill and it came out very precise as an image of a dollar bill. Now, the person doing this recognized the dollar bill, knew exactly what a dollar bill was, but they didn't switch a switch in their brain and go onto their hard drive and extract a dollar bill because brains really don't function like that. So the model is still only a language in which we can describe things, but it is often put across to us as if it is absolute scientific truth. As far as Einstein is concerned, you mentioned Einstein, I think we need to recognize that at all levels of human knowledge, and I would say including religious knowledge, truth is always emergent. And that the process itself of discovering truth is in itself a form of truth, but it won't ever be its total sum. I think all, all the problems approached by theologians are human inventions of no consequence, like why is there a universe? And what is the purpose of the universe? And so on. what happens after you're dead? Useless problems. Um, philosophers always, I think, Steve, you'll illustrate this in a few moments. Uh, <laughs> Thanks for the trailer. Yeah, are, are pessimists. I've said this in public before. If you want to do a Turing test on two people, put them behind the screen, try to work out who is the philosopher and who is the scientist, ask a series of questions. If you get a series of pessimistic answers, you know that they're philosophers. You know, they say things like, you can never know, you will never know, science is a social construct, all that sort of nonsense. Whereas if they're a scientist, they say, give us time, we're working towards it. And I think that is the correct attitude towards the pursuit of truth. So away with useless problems, which theology obfuscates even more than when they propose them. And uh, away with philosophy, which simply puts a break on the search for understanding. There is no better way of working towards the truth than the scientific method which is a process in which parts of the universe are isolated, pursued in public, and not only are they pursued in public, but they are also put in the context of other pursuits, in the way, for example, that cosmology, the, the study of the, the biggest, depends upon particle physics, the study of the smallest. And it's not like religion where these two different streams clash where they overlap. They are mutually supportive. And I think that's a sign of the strength of science. It is mutually supportive. It is a reticulation of ideas. Of course we progress by the replacement of one paradigm by another, but we are edging towards the truth. And I think the ultimate truth, if that's what really my summary should be, is nothing to do with words, but everything to do with mathematics. I think that once we have a theory of the world which is expressed solely in terms of mathematics, then we will have an understanding of the origin of the world. Science, of course, is semi-infinite. 
it's finite in the sense of looking for ultimate truths. And we know that we'll get them in the end. It's open-ended in terms of applications, including applications to computing and the resolution of the nature of consciousness, which will come from science. So I think people, humanity in general, should be proud of the fact that they have stumbled upon a way of discovering truth. So, Steve, it's all yours. Yes, there is a kind of uh, natural relationship between science and religion, especially if we think about the theological side of religion. Many of the, many of the theories and, and conceptualizations that science has subsequently put to empirical tests began as theological notions, or at least as attempts to try to get a kind of comprehensive understanding of how causation happens in the universe, you know, on the assumption that causation is a meaningful process and that there is a point to why all things move the way they do and so forth, and that there is a kind of rational, comprehensive answer to be gotten, let's say, through scientific laws. Why believe such a thing in the first place, okay? And, and the answer to that question actually does lie in certain kinds of theological preconceptions, not only about how the universe is organized, namely that it is organized, that it is a kind of unified thing, that it is subject to laws, but also that we, as beings inside of that world, have some kind of special relationship to it that we think we could have the confidence to make sense of the whole thing. Again, these are big assumptions. These are not assumptions that science itself gives us. They come from somewhere else. In philosophy, we talk about metaphysics, but if you do the history, they're basically theological notions, okay? Um, but they're theological notions that you might say become empirically domesticated over time. And that's where science comes in. And this is where I sort of part company a bit with the theologian, namely that I think what happens over time is that actually science does uh, transform a lot of these initially religious interests and theological questions into something that is uh, a bit more empirically tractable, more rational, more understandable. And also, um, you know, since we're going to be dealing with the issue of power, providing a greater kind of sense of empowerment for more of humanity, okay? So from the standpoint of the kind of world that we are, we are allowed to live in as a result of transforming uh, theological ideas into scientific ones, it's a much more empowering world. So there's no doubt about that. Uh, but nevertheless, I think it's misleading to think that there's some kind of natural antagonism between science and theology, because it seems to me that we wouldn't be where we are today with regard to science, and especially with the kinds of values that we place in science, had it not been for the theological origin. Because in so many times over the course of human history, there has been catastrophes, disasters, many of them caused by science itself, yet we continue to have faith in this, <laughs> right? We continue to have faith in science, and that's the theological residue, frankly, right? The fact that we are confident that we can put our scientific theories to very severe tests, we can use them in all kinds of ways where we can't anticipate the consequences, we often blow ourselves up, and yet we carry on. That is a, that's the theological residue of science. It is a very powerful thing, and it really guides the way the world works today, and it's why we're, we are able to absorb as much risk as we do in the world through science and technology. It's because we do, at the end of the day, believe we're created in the image and likeness of God in a very literal kind of way. So in this respect, science and theology are very continuous with each other, and they're both going after the same kind of truth, and it's God's truth. What is the relationship between science and truth? And to try and e examine this a bit more closely, 
So what do we think that makes a scientific theory true? And I suppose there's a bracket to that, which is, well, is it true, or is it just a, a temporary phenomenon? So, Rosie, what do you think makes a scientific theory true? Well, I would argue that it's provisional. I mean, in its context, any given scientific theory is as true as it possibly can be, which is why we all bought into Einstein at the time, because it seemed at that time completely self-evident that once he'd worked it out, we got to the truth. And now we're reviewing that in the light of further work that's been done. And I do agree. I do agree that it's progressive. I think that we, we stand on the shoulders of the people that have gone before us. What I would want to argue is that it's just not all truth. It is truth. It's part of the truth. It's an understanding of the truth. But science, I don't think, for example, will ever explain to me why someone standing and singing a wonderful aria, which is completely fabricated, rings such a bell with the person sitting listening to it that they understand a truth about themselves which even language can't explain. So I just think probably we're talking about different understandings of what truth is. And to be fully human, you need a menu of truths rather than just one specific one. But is it that somehow, let's assume by truth we mean you know, what's going on out there somehow. Yeah. And is it that there is a truth out there, but it's just that we have difficulty in identifying it? I mean, what is the I mean, nature the, the, between this emergent truth and somehow some ultimate notion of the, what, the, what is? <laughs> Okay, well, the classic argument, I suppose, would be to, to say, is there such a thing as an actual God out there? And every time you try and find that God and define it, by definition, you haven't found God because God is always going to be greater than that. And so I suppose, in a way, the, the same applies to truth. We're not going to come to, I don't know, 2099, and then we'll have got it. I think there is an infinite progression to be followed in terms of what is truth. Partly because, of course, the circumstances will change. What is the truth about Mars? We never knew. We might end up living there. And then we'll have to discover a whole new world of truths, which we didn't even have to explore earlier on. Okay, P Peter. I think it may be the case that there are truths that science has already discovered that will never be overthrown. So I think we should lay that out as well. Um, Do you have an example? I, I've been trying to think of examples, and I can think of two. One is um, evolution by natural selection. I think that wherever there is life in the universe, it will have evolved um, through a Darwinian-like natural selection. I think a second example would be um, the second law of thermodynamics, which says basically that things get worse. Um, I don't think that will ever be overthrown. Steve? There are two ways to think about scientific progress, you might say. One is a progress from, right? And the emergence notion sort of fits with that, right? We're sort of building on the past and we're moving forward and so forth. But then there's a progress too, which was also hinted at in, what, in Rosie's comments, namely that we might get somewhere, that there might be you know, the truth that's sort of the target, as it were, of science. This is where I think there is a kind of theological residue in science still. We sort of assume in science that the progress from is the progress to. So in other words, we're not just building on the past. That's not, we're doing more than that, right? In some sense, we're getting closer to an endpoint, right? Uh, and those are two separate ideas, okay? It's entirely possible that science can be a purely path-dependent process. Right, building on itself over time, but ending into, with a dead end, nowhere near what ultimate reality is. 
but just happens to build on itself. It, it goes into a little niche of its own. That's entirely possible from a metaphysical standpoint. Yet we don't assume that. We assume that as we go forward, we're getting closer to something. Okay? And that, I think, is a theological residue because there is this long-standing belief that God is drawing us toward himself. Right? And that guides all of our inquiries, right? That there's a sense in which the truth is driving us. It's pulling us closer as we move forward. But if the truth is out there and we get closer, why is it somehow constantly receding? In the it's, sense that it's not what, what, is, what is it makes it hard for us to actually arrive? Do you think I, don't, we are, I don't think it's necessarily receding. No. So do you think at some point we would arrive, because it is Rose's session, but some of you arrive, you know, it's, it, it, it's 2099, and we've sorted it. No, it boils down to an issue of human mm. finitude. I think that's what, it, you know, in other words, we might not be around long enough to actually get there, but that doesn't mean we're not getting closer. I see. So yeah. in principle, you, you think we could arrive? Principle? I don't see what precludes that. Yeah. How so, would you know? How would you know that you'd arrived? Well, how does a theologian answer that question with regard to God? By saying you don't know. Because well, the minute you know, well, you, you are by definition wrong. You would, you would know if it's uh, a theory in the physical sciences, whether you had predicted all the laws of nature and whether all the fundamental constants were in place, and that you had measured, for example, the mass of the electron to 3,000 decimal places, and you got every one of them right. I mean, there are empirical tests of you getting it right. But you still Whereas know I think a theologian would say uh, that you would know only after you were dead. Some theologians might <laughs> say that. But listen, you'd still know nothing about what causes a mother and a baby to bond, what makes yes, you, you weep, what makes you laugh. You'd ask a, you'd ask a psychiatrist, you'd ask a, a psychologist, you'd ask a, an anthropologist. I mean, there's lots of empirical evidence out, out there that illuminates the, the human condition, if that's what you, you're worried about. I think you're worried about understanding the human condition. In general. Yes, and, and about but, but something about the nature of our communication and our sense of being human internally and in relation to other people. Yeah, absolutely. Ask a psychologist, ask, ask a psychiatrist, oh, ask a physiologist, know. sniff the, whole, the pheromones in the air, things like that. Do you want to hear more from the world's leading thinkers? If the answer to that question is yes, subscribe to iai.tv for unlimited access to thousands of debates, talks, articles, academy courses and live events. Are you bored of the surface level news, politics, sports and entertainment coverage on your newsfeed? Go deeper, get the philosophy behind the news and get the latest big ideas from the world's leading thinkers on subjects at the core of the human condition, life, the universe and everything in between. It's free for the first month. And there's no commitment to pay, so subscribe now to understand the world beyond the surface level. But, uh, Steve, I just want to explore this a little bit more. So, isn't any theory a paradigm? It's, it's a way of holding things. And mm -hmm. are you saying that there's one paradigm that could be the right one? I'm looking at this from the standpoint of what motivates scientific inquiry. In other words, how do you end up getting guys like Peter Atkins in the first place? It's that belief, actually, right? This belief that, that there is a truth, there is an ultimate theory. Well, indeed, that but you seem to be supporting him, which is what surprised me, I suppose. Well, no, no, but, but I think that is the only... I mean, if you want to ask me what ter on what terms does the idea of, of scientific truth make sense, it does make sense in those terms. I think science has a very difficult time with the idea of there being plural truths. 
This is why I think science is a kind of replacement of theology, right? Just like theology has the God truth, right? Science has this kind of ultimate truth, maximally mm-hmm. rational, empirical, blah, blah, blah. You know, but they're pretty much the same truth at the end of the day. They don't stand for plur- plurality. So you need a funky theologian who believes you never can understand God to believe in plural truth, right? So you have this kind of paradoxical view of God, it seems, that no matter how much we try to understand God, we're never quite going to get it, yet, yet we somehow should believe in this God. From a scientific standpoint and also from a classical theological standpoint, the pluralism eventually gets resolved. But, but wait, what do you think? That's from a scientific point of view. What, what do you think? Science is a very difficult thing to maintain in the way we've maintained it unless we believe that there is this one ultimate unified truth of the sort he's talking about. He's a very good benchmark for people's attitudes towards science because I don't think science lives very well with pluralism. We're very happy with pluralism. As long as it's resolved in the end. Uh, even if it can't be resolved, so long as we can understand it. An example of pluralism of the kind that a scientist is used to is Heisenberg's uncertainty mm, principle. Sure. People say that this is a limitation on human knowledge. In fact, it's um, advice on how to understand and describe the truth. And you can either describe the truth in terms of the positions of particles, or you can describe the truth in terms of the momenta of particles. And it's only when you come to mix the two, as the classical physicists did, that they got into a muddle. So we scientists are perfectly happy with the pluralism of physical description, with parts so long as we know that we mustn't mix our languages. Yeah, but I think that's a different spirit of pluralism from what. Yes, but I wanted you. You yes. began your remarks yeah, by yeah. saying that we were uncomfortable with pluralism. Yeah, yeah. No, I take your point. I, I think there's a, there's another category that we could talk about, and that is that describing something, even if you describe it extremely well, to the extent that you say I can now describe the whole truth about it, is still the truth about something. It is not the thing itself. So I can have a, 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 a map which tells me exactly where I go to Hyde Park. It will tell me everything about it. It will tell me the parameters. It will tell me where all the trees are. And there's a very good scientific rationale for saying, I now know the truth about Hyde Park. But it is not Hyde Park itself. So you could perhaps go to a psychologist and describe everything about the truth about love, but it still is not love itself. Well, and what, I think what, that's where what, the difference what, what, is between science so and religion. What is there beyond what can be scientifically described? Because that's, that ends up still no, only on. being an empty description. It's no, not no, the no. thing itself. No, no. no I, I, I don't think so. If, if you've got a full description, if you can simulate consciousness, for example, on a computer of some kind, you, in other words, you, you've constructed a machine that it would be unethical to turn off, <laughs> then I, I think you would have understood everything there is to know about the nature of love. Well, what, what do you think, folks? Um, if he came <laughs> up with the absolute here. perfect description of my husband, down to the last little thing, would I just as soon sleep with the perfect description or my real husband? What's the last open question? What's the last little thing? <laughs> the molecule in his brain. Well, but, but, but Peter, I'm not sure you. I'm not sure you've responded to the analogy which uh, Rosie gave us of the map. Suppose we had got not just a map, but a, a, a virtual reality image of Hyde Park, that you know, we put on goggles, we got stuff up our nose, we can sniff it and so on. Uh, how would we tell the difference between the real high Hyde Park and the virtual reality Hyde Park? 
And would it matter? That's the question. I think that is actually the point, that following that model, you end up playing a game rather than living your life. Oh, what's happened if you can't tell the difference? Well, they they think they but wait a minute, there's also a difference. The, the virtual reality is not presented as a description of the world. It's creating its own world. But and and maybe that, uh, that, that world might have similarities with the one that we're used to. But in terms of our, the thought about whether scientific theories approach the truth, isn't the parallel closer to the map no. that it's, it's like a set of symbols which describes something? And the question is, can those set of symbols ever be the same thing as the truth? No, I, I see, I disagree. I think you have, you, there are many different ways of thinking about what a scientific theory is. It isn't just a description, right? A scientific theory is also generative potentially, right? That's how you're able to do experiments and make simulations and things of that kind. And of course, in the beginning of the scientific revolution, when people actually thought that the laws of physics were like the, the, the mind of God, right? they thought that if you actually knew these laws, you could, in principle, regenerate the universe from scratch, because the laws are basically the blueprint for doing it. Right? So, you, so it is very much like the virtual reality thing. I think you should think about scientific theories very much like the virtual reality, where you do potentially get into a situation where you can't tell the difference between the virtual world and the real world. I, th I think you ha you're operating with an overly narrow conception of a scientific theory when you say it's like a map. Okay. Um. <laughs> you can thank me later. <laughs> That's four beers. <laughs> Is there a way in which scientific theories always try and defend themselves so any threat to them is always going to be countered by another little theory which is yeah. developed well, and tacked on to natural selection well, to explain why in this particular case this result has been uh, forthcoming. Well, that certainly has happened in the past, of course. I mean, if you take um, the 19th century of, of the, the, the apotheosis, if you like, of classical physics, and towards the end of the 19th century, where people discovered that they couldn't account for the intensity of radiation from hot bodies. That was not just a little tweak on classical physics. It overthrew, overthrowed uh, classical <laughs> physics. <laughs> and, and from it emerged quantum mechanics and so on. So um, certainly when the Victorians thought that they had it all tied down, suddenly a little cloud appeared on the horizon, which overthrew it. Mm. I, wanna, I, I agree with the premise that, that Hillary was working with, namely that when we talk about natural selection as being a paradigm, the thing that's important to, to realize, and this, is kind of, this sort of shows the way in which science is kind of a monolithic thing, namely the only way you can overturn natural selection, given its paradigm status in biology, is by the theory itself self-destructing through an accumulation of anomalies, like, for example, this paper that you were citing that shows a little bit of teleology. But of course, the initial response is going to be to try to say, no, those guys have analyzed the thing wrong. Really, natural selection can, can account for it. But if enough of these things arise, and you get a stockpile of anomalies that the paradigm can't make sense of, then there is an incentive within science to change the paradigm and then maybe move to a more teleological yeah, position. But the science itself has to initiate the change. This is the point. The science isn't really tolerating pluralism in this case. Rather, the science is recognizing that it's gone astray in a certain way, and now it's going to recover by changing its position. So it's not tolerating teleology in the meanwhile, right? It's waiting for there to be enough anomalies that they're forced to deal with teleology. The, the, the theological analogy is um, the Vatican doctors. 
who have to justify a miracle by saying that a particular recovery from a disease was totally impossible according to modern science. They are just bad doctors. Yeah, well, that's probably true. I wouldn't want to defend that in any way whatsoever. <laughs> but I think what you've just described, we could track that process through history. That's mm -hmm. the way things happen. But there's no particular reason to think that that won't continue to happen. Mm -hmm. That every generation, like you are at the moment, will defend the position where they say, this is the bit, the core bit that we have now discovered. That is set. Mm -hmm. That mm -hmm. won't change. Yeah. And I think you could probably say that no, you know, right back to flat earthers. People will argue their position. Yeah, I, okay. Can I just ask why, why the question is important? Actually, what is there that's wrong? I'm genuinely asking, what is wrong with saying this is the truth that we perceive now, this is our generation's truth, and be content with that? It's, it has to do with the means by which you imagine the, ch the, ch the change will occur in the future. Because when you put it the way you just did, it makes it sound like every it's up to every generation to decide what truth to believe which I think both of us, even you, yeah. I think, would disagree with, right? Yeah. Yeah. Right, so the point is, what is the process of change by, that you're referring to that does happen, obviously, over time? You know, that's the interesting question with regard to the truth. So sure, it's true. You look over successive generations, people hold different things to be true. But how does that change happen? Well, we scientists simply want to understand. That is what dr is driving us. It's not you know, it, trying to know the mind of God or anything like that. It oh, is, yes, it is. Oh, come on. <laughs> <laughs> we are driven by the urge to understand. We know that we're not very good athletes, that cheetahs are better than us, jaguars are better than us. We can't fly like an eagle. But what we can do is understand. That is that marks out humanity from, from base that's animals. Not sufficient. Like that's other not sufficient answer because if you want to understand reality, you could do it her way. No, I, and her way would never get you to science. But, but, but it wouldn't give right? me any understanding. Yes, it, well, it, no, no, no she, take her point at no. face value. It does give you understanding. Well, it it doesn't give you this very specific kind of understanding. It doesn't give you the understanding that you find personally satisfying. But in this room, we could have all sorts of different multi-layered conversations, and we would be understanding one another and the world in a, in a very yeah, so layered and nuanced way. What you want, no, you want no. something more than understanding. No, I want deep understanding. Well, okay, <laughs> thank you very much. But or lit I mean, literal understanding, which is one form of understanding. That's right. But only uh, mathematics is no, the language not of yes. the God, right? No. <laughs> mathematics, I think that if we were to understand why mathematics works, then we will have arrive, arrived at what I regard as deep truth. I'd like to end with this theme, which I think Rosie's really introduced, which is what would be the consequence of us giving up on the idea of an ultimate truth, Peter? Oh, it'd be absolutely boring, wouldn't that? I mean, <laughs> and, and lazy. I mean, the, there is joy to be had, uh, you would say, from the knowledge of God. I would say from understanding uh, how the world works. And I think there is pleasure to be elicited from the constant striving towards deeper understanding. And you don't think it's just that from, you can watch if, you're, if you're a scientist, it makes you, you feel, well, I've got a bit more power here. Yeah. I, uh, <laughs> I've, got, yeah. I've got truth behind me, and I've really discovered something. Well, I'm some, not just creating a tool which certainly. might help us so, do something. Some of that power enables us to fly in aeroplanes. And so, so, yeah, certainly science gives, the progress of science does give you power, certainly. But I don't think it's, um, it's certainly speaking for myself, it's not driving me mm. to acquire power. 
but it does give me pleasure to understand. Do you think we need truth in order to make progress, Steve? Well, I, I mean, in terms of how you originally phrased the question, I think in terms of uh, our self-understanding as human beings, I think we do, okay? So in other words, I think something is very, would be very profoundly taken away from us as human beings if we stopped trying to look for the ultimate truth. In this respect, I think we would end up being just clever animals who can make sense of the world and live comfortably and probably live a much more secure existence than we currently live at the moment we're, because through science and technology, of course, we're putting ourselves through enormous kinds of risks every day. And we would probably live with a lot less risk under those circumstances, but we would live as glorified animals, it seems. I would like, I'd like to challenge this idea that things actually naturally do progress and that deeper knowledge is a better thing and that new knowledge is, in fact, deeper knowledge because it could be stepping backwards. I don't know about you, but I grew up in an era where I genuinely assumed that all sorts of things were going to continue to get better. And I thought that my children would be better off than I am. I thought the world would be a safer place, a more secure place. At all sorts of layers of my experience, including the scientific, I thought that things would continue to improve. I remember a guy on the radio saying, don't worry about the oil crisis. The scientists will fix that. They'll come up with something much better. Well, we are. Well, but we, no, haven't, well, we haven't yet, except, of course, <laughs> the atomic bomb, and that didn't do us a whole load of good. But what I'm saying is that we cannot assume an automatic trajectory towards everything getting better all the time in any level of our lives. And more knowledge might not actually be better knowledge or deeper knowledge. It might actually be a distraction. We might be going down some strange yeah, alleyway. Right. I'm not arguing against knowledge. I'm just saying that we can't yes, make that basic are. assumption. <laughs> you, you, you think that ignorance is bliss? Not at all. I'm just Back saying... Back to the mind of dog. <laughs> <laughs> well. We hope you enjoyed this podcast, brought to you by the Institute of Art and Ideas. So what do you think? Is science closer to uncovering the truth than we think? Let us know by tweeting at iii underscore tv with the hashtag philosophy for our times. Next week marks the beginning of a new series of podcasts on the theme of love, sex and relationships. So don't forget to subscribe to iTunes or SoundCloud or your favourite podcast app to hear more from philosophy for our times. <laughs>